As we gather together, may we remember when you share with me what is most important to you, that is where listening begins. When I show you that I hear you, when I say your life matters, that is where compassion begins. When I open the door to greet you, that is where hospitality begins. When I venture out to bring you to shelter, that is where love begins. When I risk my comfort to ease your suffering, when I act against hatred, violence, and injustice, that is where courage begins. When we experience the full presence of each other because of our shared humanity, because of our differences, that is where holy gratitude begins. May this space be a table that is not complete until all are welcome here. May this table be a space of beauty where together we create a series of miracles and where all that we share is sacred. May it be so. You know, I didn't become a Unitarian Universalist until I was in my 40s. My most meaningful religious experience before that had been in my late teens and early 20s when I was part of the Evangelical Christian movement. While there are a number of aspects of that religious path that appealed to me, ultimately, I became dissatisfied with the restrictive beliefs that resulted in condemning and excluding people who did not fit into the definition of true Christians. Specifically, my best friend who was gay was unwelcome. And then I was advised that I did not act according to the ideal woman role that was touted as the biblical model. I ended up leaving the church for over 20 years and only started to look for another church when I felt I should, I should find a religious home for my children. So I visited for the first time a UU congregation in Prescott, Arizona. Now the worship room there has the UU principles actually painted on the walls surrounding the congregation. 
And as I listened to the message of the sermon and I read the principles on the walls, I became aware that I was in a place where people were less focused on who did not belong there and more interested in how we all belonged, how every human was valued for his having worth and dignity. Like many of you who have experienced that same overwhelming sense of kindred souls, I felt something wake up inside of me. I resonated with these ideals, with the thought that we could learn to love each other, not despite our differences, but because of our differences. It took me several years to realize it was one thing to talk about creating a community of love and acceptance, but it was much harder to live that way. I think many come into this faith because we honest, honestly believe in honoring the worth and dignity of every person, but we also are aware of how hard this is to do. It seems like real people, the people we live with, the people we work with, the people that we worship with, they can all be so unlikable at times. So I want to tell you the story about part of my ministerial training where I have to do a chaplaincy unit in a hospital. These chaplaincy trainings are designed to be very intense and self-revealing. The five chaplaincy residents interact with each other for eight hours a day, five days a week for 13 weeks. We eat our meals together, we visit patients together, we process our visits together, and then for two days each week, we're shut in a room with just us and our supervisor. And during these two intimate days together, we have to share our feelings, examine our personalities and behaviors, confront and challenge each other, and examine in detail how we interact with each of the others. So during the first few days we were together, I realized I might have a problem with one of the others, Tim, which is not his real name. After two weeks of this intense time together, I realized that yes, indeed, I did have problems with Tim. Every time there's a discussion, Tim would be the first person to respond. He tended to present himself as an expert. He took it upon himself to explain things to the rest of us, and he would even interrupt and correct the class instructors. He talked about himself as a mystic, explaining that he had an incredible spiritual sensitivity and when he entered a room, he would rearrange the furniture and dim the lights, and he'd seem to fuss around to make everything in the room suit his personal needs. So I ended up avoiding Tim as much as I could. And in our small group meetings, I would limit how much I interacted with him. I had a hard time even listening to him. So I'm going to stop right here for a minute. What was going on in me that made me so unable to like Tim? What goes on in each of us when we find someone we're unable to like? Well, the problem can be that there is something wrong with them, or the problem can actually be within ourselves. In general, there are four categories of people that most of us find unlikable. The first is that there are some people who seem to think that they know more than others or are better than others. The second group are people who come off as dishonest. They may appear suspiciously nice, are seen to be hiding their feelings. The third group is those who appear desperate for any interaction. So they tend to talk too much and they may over reveal personal information too easily. 
And then finally, there are people who display an intensity that feels overwhelming at times, such as way too cheerful or just too anxious. And we know also the problem can be within ourselves, right? We have a hard time with people who display the qualities that we most dislike in ourselves. We also tend to not like others who are very different from us, who we can't relate to or we don't have any characteristics in common with. People who act differently, who appear odd to us, can generate some anxiety and fear. And this is particularly important for us to be aware of, as we may respond poorly to people who struggle with their own personal demons, people who are diagnosed with a mental illness or behavioral disorder or social disruption. The feelings that we experience when we dislike someone or just don't get along with them are not pleasant. It can lead to our own emotional whirlwind of feeling impatient, righteous, frustrated, or angry. We may respond by being unkind, by being dismissive, by arguing or withdrawing into ourselves. We usually don't feel good about ourselves. This is not who we imagine ourselves to be, right? When I find myself unable to like someone, I feel very disappointed in myself. When I respond to them with anger or by avoiding them, I feel turmoil. I do not do well with that sort of emotional unease. So let me return to my story of Tim. During the third week of the chaplaincy program, Tim confronted me in the group setting, saying I seemed aloof and withdrawn. And he said he needed more from me. So I had several thoughts about this. Uh, one part of me thought, oh, oh my, you have no idea what you are asking for. I was ready to let him know how pompous he appeared to me. And the other part of me actually just didn't want to engage with him. I felt a little bit of judgmental superiority and I was comfortable keeping distant from him. And yet at the same time, I was uncomfortable about my own judgmental opinion of him. And I also knew, I just knew that if I was really going to believe, if I was really going to live according to what I believed, I actually had to make an effort. And so I asked Tim out for dinner. And over our meal together, Tim told me his life story of growing up with a father who did not like him, starting right at Tim's birth. His father demanded a cult-like devotion from his wife and other children, but deliberately excluded Tim from the family, leaving him at home while he took everyone else out for ice cream under the county fair. His father was physically and emotionally abusive, particularly to Tim and his mother. Tim ended up fleeing his home at the age of 18 and put himself through college and worked himself into a successful career where he distinguished himself. Then in his late forties, he began waking in the night, experiencing agonizing grief and terror. He had such mental anguish that he knew he was breaking apart and he was very afraid for his sanity. He couldn't sustain his career and his home and he moved to an isolated ranch. There, he began to have daily encounters with invisible spirit guides who spoke to him, prayed with him, and taught him how to pull himself back together. 
This took years. Now, in his 60s, Tim plays, pays close attention to his mental and spiritual health. He feels vulnerable, so tries to make sure he is safe by arranging rooms and spaces to calm him. He's also eager to talk to people about his experiences so he can compare his life to other people's. As I listened to Tim, I changed. Instead of seeing him as a know-it-all controlling male, I began to see him as someone struggling to make sense of the world, who was willing to honestly confront what came at him, and who had a genuine desire to be in relationship with others. I developed compassion with Tim. That's the thing about getting to know someone better. You actually start to understand them and experience compassion with them. So compassion is one of the numerous reactions we can have when a friend or a neighbor has some kind of form of life crisis, emotional pain, or relational conflict in their life. Reactions range from empathy to sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Apathy is the most negative of these because it's a way of not caring about the other person. And sympathy is acknowledging that it's too bad that the other person is suffering, but it entails that, empathy, that entity of pity that Steve was talking about early. It implies an aloofness or a superiority. Empathy for others is both positive and powerful. In an empathic response, we can actually imagine being in the same place as the person suffering. We feel what they feel. There may be no emotional space between us and that person in pain. So empathy involves catching a wide range of emotions from others, and it may result in personal stress. It can generate stress and be unsustainable in the presence of a lot of suffering. Compassion is a bit more cognitive and it's more sustainable. Instead of experiencing another's suffering, we come to understand it. Compassion generates the feelings of love and concern, and there is a wish that the suffering would be alleviated. In her book, The 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, Karen Armstrong examines the history of compassion. She explains that thousands of years ago, we had primitive brains that were focused on survival. Our primitive brains focused on the four Fs, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproduction. And these correlate with strong reactions, such as fear, angry, hatred, hostility, and greed. Over time, human survival came to depend on an ability to cooperate with each other, which was impeded by these primitive reactions. Those who learned to get along with others and who could identify other person's needs had a greater chance of survival. So human brains started to develop the ability to get along with others. Over time, brains evolved beyond the 4F brain, and the new brain came to include reason, reflection, and an instinctive appreciation of beauty. Compassion became an essential element of survival. As our brains evolved even further, we developed a revulsion toward violence. It was this revulsion that actually generated the religious revolution that occurred between the years 900 to 200 
BCE. The spiritual development of humanity occurred in four distinct regions of the world. On the Indian subcontinent, we saw the formation of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. In China, there arose Confucianism and Taoism. The Middle East formed monotheism, and Greece developed philosophical rationalism. All the faith traditions and religions of today can be traced back to these four regions of thought. And all of these spiritual traditions include compassion as a key component. The religions of the world all act to keep our primitive brains in check by emphasizing how to cooperate and how to get along with others. Religions rely on empathy and they promote compassion. One example of this could be seen in Buddha, who tried to control his primitive passions by suppressing his desires, abstaining from anything that would distract him. But simply crushing violent impulses was unsustainable. And he learned instead to encourage feelings of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Buddha created a path for others to follow that includes a practice of meditation and mindfulness to help people become aware of what impedes compassion. Another example can be seen in Western Christianity that adopted the crucifix. The aim of the crucifix is for people to see the suffering of someone tortured on a cross. It is designed to create an empathic response to the suffering caused by violence and the lack of compassion. And the ancient Greeks put on plays and tragedies that dramatized suffering. And these were so effective that they often resulted in these communal weeping services, serving to remind each person there that they were not alone in their suffering. There's a lot more that we could say about the role of religion and compassion, but the key point is that learning compassion is our spiritual journey. So how do we learn compassion? How do we take this spiritual journey? Some of the stepping stones on this path include things we already know, but sometimes we forget. First, love yourself. Appreciate your gifts. We are not able to love others if we don't first ground ourselves in an acceptance and appreciation of what we each have to offer. Second, practice empathy. This is a practice. These days we have learned to turn away from people asking for money in the streets, those suffering in refugee camps or in homeless shelters. But we need to actually pay attention. We need to turn our eyes and our minds back to see the suffering of others and then attend to our emotional response. We need to experience empathy. Third, we need to practice mindfulness. This moves us away from instinctive, primitive reactions. Mindfulness lets us experience being present for what is happening right now in this moment. Fourth, take action. Meditate on joy and compassion. Be kind when you can. Take small steps. Ask someone out for a coffee or for a walk. Take big steps. Move into compassionate ways of being. And recognize others. Let us learn to see each other 
as people on a similar journey. Let us learn what is of value in each other, practicing the art of appreciation, of discerning the other person. Becoming a compassionate person is a lifelong process. It's not an easy path, and each of us falls back to our primitive instincts, our ways of being in conflict with each other. But the reason we come together in the religious community, into this church, is not because we excel at loving each other, but because we are here to remind each other that we want to with compassion. I want to close with these words from the Dalai Lama. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Blessed be. How could any